Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Time for us to have a little chat with Vaughn Palmer on this Monday. Good morning, Vaughn. Okay, we're talking about decriminalization this morning. So I have to say, I, I did notice this um, this letter that came out, I guess, it's from the Harm Reduction Nurses Association, and they are not happy about the government's efforts to dial back uh, public usage of drugs. Yes. So the Nurses Harm Reduction Society and uh, Pivot Legal Society are going to court to challenge the government's new piece of legislation restricting open drug use. So this year, Simi has seen both the implementation of decriminalization here in British Columbia and the NDP government losing some of its enthusiasm for that. So one of the big things that happened in the spring was mayors and councillors saying, this thing is wreaking havoc on our streets. It's leading to open drug use all over the place and we can't stop it because it's not illegal anymore. Uh, the provincial government initially scoffed at the need for it, then turned 180 degrees around and brought in a law to restrict it severely. So open drug use, uh, public spaces generally, uh, parks, recreational spaces, playgrounds, all doorways. Uh, it's all in there. And it has led to uh, a pushback from advocates of decriminalization and safe supply. They all say, Simi, oh, no, this will lead to stigmatization of drug use and the drug uh, users will go back underground and they'll continue to die in alarming numbers, which they are doing. So it's a, it's a struggle between where the NDP stood at the beginning of the year and its advocates and where it stands now, um, I think the government has accepted that the public is not uh, uh, as enthusiastic mm -hmm. as the New Democrats were about this. And uh, communities are seeing the downside. And I think, I mean, I think the government's backing off for political reasons. They recognize that they didn't bring the public along on this. And I think advocates uh, should be worried that if the government didn't do things like this, uh, they would lose overall public support for the whole initiative. Exactly. We're going to be speaking actually to the president of that group coming up at 8.15 on the show this morning. But when we talk about decriminalization, there's a couple of examples that yep. people point to. One that they used to point to, but not so much anymore is Oregon, I guess. The state of Oregon. So, you know, in uh, 2020, uh, the state voted, the people there voted 58% in favor of what was the first sweeping decriminalization of drugs initiative in the United States. They were aware of the risks there. The state recognized it was going to have to top up resources for rehabilitation and drug treatment and all that. You couldn't just say, go ahead and use drugs, although they did. Um, and everybody's been watching that experiment. Uh, you know, British Columbia used to say, well, we look to Oregon, we look to Portugal. Okay. Uh, the reports that I've seen on this suggest that it is 
a failure to the same de- to such a degree, Simi, that the public in Oregon has turned right around and they want to recriminalize. They, th- they see the thing as the experiment, as a failure. Uh, the most recent piece on this was in the Wall Street Journal on the weekend, but the New York Times has reported on it. The UK Economist magazine has reported on it, all with the same thing in mind. Let's see how it's going. We've been hearing from advocates for a long time that criminalizing drugs, the war on drugs wasn't working, and that this was the solution. Clearly, from the preliminary reports, and Oregon's been at it for three years now, it's not working either. Right. The, the problem is that some of the ideas sounded really good in the beginning, yeah, but the actual follow through has been very weak. For instance, it's the whole ticket thing. Yeah. So the idea down there was that you wouldn't charge people with drug possession or drug use. Right. Uh, what you would do, what the police would do is they'd give people a ticket, a $100 ticket. And if you didn't want to pay the ticket, and most users didn't and couldn't, all you had to do was phone the phone number at the bottom of the ticket, and there were rehab and treatment services available. That was the concept. Um, The stat that jumped out at me most recently is police have issued 6,000 tickets. 92 people have taken up the invitation to check in with rehab. It's, it's, you know, there's sometimes we use analogies regarding addiction and drug use, talk about, you know, uh, cancer or diabetes, the treatments available, but it doesn't work like that. I mean, that what's really come through is that many, many people who are addicts are in such a state that uh, they aren't you know, going to take advantage of getting off drugs. And locking them up didn't work, but just saying, go ahead and use it. And if you, uh, you know, want to avoid paying a ticket, which most of them didn't pay, uh, phone this number and get into rehab, that didn't work either. So, you know, I, I think we're at a stage, certainly in Oregon, there's now coalition there, which has gotten together and which is going to put a referendum. They have uh, initiatives and referendum in Oregon uh, next year uh, that will reverse direction on this. And the indications are that the public, you know, the 58% they voted for it. Let's give it a try. It's an experiment. They're now saying it's not working. We don't like it. We want to go back to the old system. Um, some of that has happened in Portugal as well. There have been coverage of the situation in Portugal. They decriminalized 20 years ago. So they've had a lot longer at it. Again, public support there unraveling because what you're getting is widespread public drug use by people that won't give up their drugs in spite of counseling and treatment available and all that. Uh, it, It isn't easy to think of a way through this, but you're losing public support for it. Indications are in the United States, nobody's going to be following the Oregon model. Seattle, Washington State, the governor approved funding for more treatment recently, but he rejected calls for decriminalization. Looking to Oregon, he said, it doesn't work. We are back with Vaughn Palmer on this Monday morning, and we wanted to talk about someone who has been really significant in BC history, uh, Vaughn Gordon Gibson Jr., 
Gordon Gibson Jr., and we say Jr. because his father, Gordon Gibson Sr., was a major political figure in the 1950s, took on the social credit government of W.A.C. Bennett. So Gordon uh, came from a political family and a long history. He was one of the young Turks as an advisor and political staffer to Prime Minister Trudeau, the elder, by the way, not the junior, uh, Got himself elected, Gordon did, a member of the B.C. legislature and was a member for a few years, 74 to 79, took on the Bill Bennett government on forest policy, tried to get himself elected to parliament. That didn't work. But he sought the B.C. Liberal Party leadership in the 1990s, lost, finished second to Gordon Campbell. So very active there. After his uh, bid for the party leadership, Gordon really reinvented himself as a as a pundit, a commentator, a researcher, a columnist, and so forth. Very active. I was struck, Simi, reading some of the tributes to him over the weekend, and he died Friday at age 86. Uh, a number of my colleagues who said what a delight it was to talk to Gordon Gibson Sr., Jr., because even when you disagreed with him, yeah. and many people did, he was very outspoken, he was incredibly patient and genial and outgoing. He would treat you with respect and answer your questions with respect. So he contributed a lot uh, on a lot of fronts in BC, uh, constitutional issues, forest policy, indigenous relations. And, and, you know, some of his views are very controversial. But uh, as I say, he, was a, he made a constructive contribution to the political debate in this province over many decades and we we uh, we obviously yeah. remember him very well from like the early 1990s because he almost became BC Liberal leader. Yes, yes. I mean, he went into that arguing that he'd been a liberal long before Gordon Campbell, had, which is true. Uh, his family pedigree went back to the 1950s, and uh, yeah, he came close. Uh, and and right after that leadership win, Campbell, in my view, made a big mistake. He did not reach out to the losing candidates the way he did. It would have been difficult to patch things up with Gordon Wilson, the other Gordon in that race. But uh, I think Gibson would have been, it would have helped shore up Campbell's support. Campbell went on to lose the next election by a narrow margin in 96. But in 2001, he became premier. Campbell did, won the election. And he then called on Gibson for something that I think you could argue is maybe Gordon Gibson's biggest contribution to public life in British Columbia because Campbell asked Gibson to did not design the Citizens' Assembly on Electoral Reform. That was to fulfill Campbell's promise that we would have a referendum in BC on changing to a form of proportional representation. Gibson's, I was looking over this morning to see what Gibson actually did. And the most important thing he did, and I think something that people would still look to, is he decided that the Citizens' Assembly should actually be a Citizens' Assembly. Gibson was deluged with people who were experts in proportional representation and electoral reform and had interests and access to grind, and they all wanted to be on the Assembly, and he turned them all down. He said no. We're going to have actual citizens. And they set up a system where they picked uh, two people per provincial constituency. There was some back and forth on this. And they provided them with research and background and answered questions and briefed them. 
But those citizens decided what the electoral system we were going to have would be without political interference from the government. And they picked uh, a form of proportional representation called the single transferable vote. And some of us make jokes about the single transferable vote because it's hard to explain how it worked. But the thing to note is it almost passed. Uh, Gordon Campbell and the Liberals put up a very tough requirement for that to pass. It wasn't just a simple majority of 50%. You had to win constituencies in the province as well. It almost succeeded in 2005. It almost passed. It did much better than the referendum that John Horgan put in in uh, 2018 and the one that uh, Gibson denounced as political interference. So, you know, you once in a while uh, around the world, you'll see references to BC's Citizens Assembly on electoral reform. It's unique, Simi. You, you and I it know is, very yeah. rarely do the politicians actually hand over to the people the control over something like what kind of electoral reform shall we have? And I think, you know, you, and you hit it on the head there when you say people forget just how close this came yeah. to actually making it. They fell, um, what, it was 57.69% in favor, needed 60%. Yeah. That's how close it was. And they still had yeah. the majority in 77 out of the 79 electoral districts. Yeah. Yeah, it did. British Columbians. And I think, you know, I think the reason that referendum did better than, uh, say, the John Horgan one was that whatever you thought of the single transferable vote, there was no arguing that it was the choice of ordinary citizens that that was the option they wanted and that the Citizens Assembly had clean hands. It was a clean institution not a whiff of political interference. Again, to go to the 2018 one that the Horkin government did, it was clearly crafted politically by a fellow named David Eby, uh, and there was no ability to really argue that there was no political interference. There was political interference, and it failed miserably. It was like two to one almost. So uh, Gibson, um, you know, a a Democrat, and (laughs) I, I made a joke about the single transferable vote, Simi, but... I was thinking back to Gordon Gibson took it on himself to make a video explaining how the single transferable vote went. And it was patient and it did it it was as good as anything I've ever seen explaining the complexities yeah. of a system that had a mathematical formula in the middle of it. But uh, again, that was that was Gordon Gibson. Uh, if you if you called him up, Simi, or you had him as a guest on your show, yeah, you knew you were going to get content, intelligence, and treating his critics with respect. Very true, Vaughn. Thank you. Bye, bye, Simi. That is Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun.